Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. People are angry today. They're mad. Uh, there were little cracks in our society, but it seems like over the last couple uh, years, maybe a decade or so, those, those cracks have turned into huge crevices. And people are just mad. They're, they're angry at the people on the other side of the issue. And, uh, you know, you look at those situations, and, and, I mean, everyone feels strong about them. And, and you know what? We're, we're not immune to it. We're not just out here looking in and saying, boy, all those people are mad over there, or they're angry over there. I mean, we're angry. And, you know, rightly so. I mean, we look at uh, situations and we think, you know, this isn't right. I mean, we have these deeply held convictions that we think arise out of Scripture, and they do, and we're, we're, we're angry that someone is trying to normalize certain things that just, you know, are wrong, sin from the pit of hell. And so, so there's just anger all around. But here's the question I want us to think about. Should our anger, should the anger of the people of God look like the anger that everyone else has? The people that are just mad because they're not getting their way or their philosophy is not getting put forward. Well, you know, as the way I've asked the question, you know what the answer is. No, it shouldn't. Our anger needs to be and should be different. It should look different, if you will. I mean, the Bible has some real clear instructions about anger. I mean, the Apostle Paul said, be angry. But don't sin. You know, he also gave some other instructions about how long you're supposed to be angry before you get going on dealing with some of that stuff. And, and it also, I think, uh, you know, in James, I thought this is fascinating. James says, hey, just remember, the anger of man, even my anger, even your anger, really doesn't accomplish the will of God. Uh, You know what? You and I are not very productive for God when we're mad and angry. When I was mad and angry at my kids, I wasn't advancing my fatherhood. I was kind of in neutral, and I needed to get rid of my anger so that I actually could start dealing with the disobedience or the slothfulness or the whatever that needed to be parented out of those kids, But should my anger, should your anger about all this stuff that's going on out there, should it look just like the guy who, you know, is totally driven by a secular, humanistic philosophy of life? No, it shouldn't. I mean, we're the people of God. We're people that have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. And so we should be angry, but not sin. And, and our anger should look a lot different than the anger that we often see out there by the masses. 
Now I bring all that up because I think this passage of Scripture, Revelation 10, I think this passage of Scripture actually provides us with a lot of insight, some, some really practical insight in this area of how you respond to what's going on out there. Now, uh, just a reminder, we're walking through the book of Revelation. We're calling it Jesus Revealed. Because in the book of Revelation, we see a picture of Jesus that is, is unique. I mean, in the Gospels, he's the gentle and lowly baby in the manger. He's the, the Savior that came. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, it's not a different perspective. Uh, perspective it it just is a more complete or it just helps complete the perspective we should have it he's also the judge he's also the one who is going to bring about righteousness and justice he's the one that's going to make all things right and so as we've been walking through the book of revelation we've been kind of paying particular attention to what we're seeing about jesus now just a reminder the book of revelation is basically John's recording of a vision that God gave him one Sunday afternoon. In the chapter 1, it says that on the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday, he said, on the Lord's Day, this is what I saw, and I was told to write it all down. Well, the part of the vision that we're in is after John had been taken up to heaven in his vision... In chapter 4, he was transported into the throne room of God. And there he was. He was in God's throne room, and he saw God on the throne. saw these four beings around it, 24 elders around that, and then a myriad of people around that. And they were all worshiping and praising God. And in God's hand, there was a scroll, a document. And that document was sealed up with seven seals. And in that vision, Jesus, who was seen as a lamb, the second person of the Trinity, he was given authority to go open that document. And and Jesus broke open every one of those seals. And every time he broke open a seal, it revealed more of the content of that document. And that content was various judgments. And so... In chapter 6 and 7, we saw those, what we call sealed judgments. Well, when you got to the seventh seal and it was broken open, we discovered that the seventh seal was actually seven more trumpets, seven more judgments. Here's something that's really good to help you understand, okay? The seventh seal, it's the seven trumpets, there was, a, there was like these seven angels that came forward and they each were given a trumpet and they were going to blast that trumpet in, when it was their turn and then there would be an announcement of some judgment that was going to be poured out on the, on the earth. And so the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. And we'll see this in about four or five weeks when we get there. The seventh trumpet it is seven more judgments. And, and, and so we've gone through the six of the, of the trumpets. We walked through those. Those were over in uh, chapter 8. 
and uh, uh, nine, and we saw a trumpet one, trumpet two, trumpet three, trumpet four. And if we did all our math correctly, and if we take this stuff at face value, like I think we should, by now the Earth's population is, has been reduced by more than half. In other words, there's 8 billion people on the face of the earth. If we take this stuff at face value, by now 4 billion people and more have been killed either by war or famine or pestilence. They're dead. This side of the room, you guys are out at Chapelwood now, and the rest of us are going to try to figure out how to make it. That's, that's, that's what this has said if we're going to take it literally, which I think we should. Well, we've gotten through those six judgments, and now we're in chapter 10. And, and here's what happens, is there's kind of a pause. We're not going to get to that seventh trumpet blast until we get to chapter 16. So what goes on in chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, and 15? It, it's kind of some, some extra information about things that are going on and chapter 10 is kind of the introduction of that it's kind of like a a little parenthesis in the storyline and so what I want to do for you is I want to read to you chapter 10 and then we're going to come back and talk about it and then uh, we'll wrap things up with just some practical things that we can take away from it. Let me just read it for you, okay? This is Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And I, that's John, I saw a strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little scroll which was open and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he had cried out the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices and when the seven peals of thunder had spoken I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying Seal up the things which, you have, which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Don't write them down. Verse 5. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land, he lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and, and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there should be no more delay but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound when the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets and the voice which I heard from heaven I heard it again speaking with me saying hey go take that little scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land and so I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. And it's going to make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it's going to be sweet as honey. 
and I took that little scroll out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And we'll just stop there in the story, okay? Let, 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 me, let me just kind of walk through this thing for you. Okay, it's kind of this first four verses is an introduction. Okay, so remember, we've already heard six trumpet blasts and the judgments that followed with them. So we're kind of waiting for that seventh judgment. And before that seventh trumpet judgment was revealed, John saw this angel coming down from heaven. And, and remember, okay, th- these, are, these are visions, there's dreams, tons of imagery, and it's kind of hard to, to, to fix it all up and figure out exactly what it means and stuff like that. So we're, we're, we're trying to be extra careful about it. But here's this, this giant of an angel who floats down out of heaven and he puts one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And, you know, that's got to be, he's taking authority. This is a guy that's in charge, okay? This isn't just some angel that's floating around, doesn't have anything else to do. This is someone that's been ordained with some power, and he's coming in, and he's putting some authority down. And, and you know, what is the sea, and what's the land a lot of times in Scripture, the land is the land. I mean, God has a land that he cared about, and so it's like the promised land. It's, it's Israel, you know, the, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's the sea? The sea, I mean, that's where the foreigners are. That's where the Gentiles were. And here's an angel that comes down and, and has his foot on both groups. It's like everybody's stopping Nothing's going to happen because I got something to say. So you see that? See verse 1, when I saw the strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud, with a rainbow upon its head. I mean, in the Bible, rainbows refer to the fact that God has made promises that he's going to keep. Remember the very first rainbow that ever appeared was appeared to uh, Noah after the ark. After the, the, the water had subsided there in Genesis 9, Noah gets out, he builds a sacrifice, thanks God for the safety that God had given he and his family as they went through the, that dramatic flood that killed off the rest of humanity. And what, was God put, what did God put in the sky? He put a rainbow up there in the sky. And that rainbow was to be a sign to Noah and his family and his heirs, that's us, that God is going to keep his promises, and God's never going to do that again to the world. Rainbows are signs that God keeps his promises. I know today they've got different meanings, but that's what the biblical meaning of a rainbow is. And so here's this angel. He's got a cloud. He's got a rainbow. His head and his face look like the sun. His feet look like a pillar of fire. And he's got this little book in his hand, this little scroll in his hand. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Places his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he cries out, and and it's like when he, what he said, it, it was so bold, it was so noteworthy, it sounded like seven lightning strikes. 
You ever been really close to a lightning strike? You know, we've had trees in our yard get struck by lightning, and I mean, it's just like, boom, and the house shakes, you know? It's just huge. I'm sure you've probably had that experience. And so this happened seven times. This, this, as this angel spoke, it was like boom, 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 seven times, like seven peals of thunder. And John was like, whoa, this is good. And he was about ready to write it down. But did you see what uh, he was told? Don't write it down. So we don't know what the angel even said, at least in this situation. It's like, no. That ain't going to be recorded. You know, it's just a good lesson to us to, to uh, we don't have all of God's truth. I mean, that's why, you know, we read through the Bible and a few things don't make sense and it seems like there's a jump in the logic, you know, whether it's in theology or whatever. And it's like, this doesn't add up, you know, because two and two is now supposed to equal five here or something like that. It's because God has chosen not to tell us everything. Here's a clear example where John wanted to write down and put in the book what the seven angel, what this angel said the, with these seven peals of thunder. He said, no, don't, don't, uh, don't put it in there. Seal up the things which the seven peals of uh, thunder have spoken. Don't write them down. That's verse 4. And then look at this. Look at verse 5, okay? So that, that's kind of the introduction. And then here's this announcement, And I love this, okay? Look, here's this huge angel that is in his vision. He's standing, got one foot on the ocean, one foot on the land. And he lifts his hand up like he's swearing, like he he was in court swearing to tell the truth, just like Abraham did in Genesis 14 when Abraham lifted his hand and he swore by God that he was going to do this from now on. He lifts his hand, his right hand, to heaven, and he swore, and I love how God is, is, is described here. Do you see this in verse 6? I, he swore by him who lives forever and ever. He, he, he's saying, I am swearing by the eternal God, by him who created heaven and the things in it, earth and the things in it, the sea in it. He is swearing by God's eternity, his eternality, and he's swearing by the fact that God is the creator. And when you are the creator, the designer, owner, you're sovereign. So based on his eternality and his sovereignty, here's the message. And and you might even miss it because this scene is so grand, but look at the very end of verse 6. What was the message? There shall be delay no longer. In other words, this judgment thing, this bringing all things back to the way they should be, making all things right, it ain't going to take much longer. And you say, well, wait a minute, this is chapter 10, and the book has 22 chapters. There's a lot of stuff still to go. And you're right, there is a lot of stuff still to go, But what he's saying there is, it's not going to take much time. In other words, God's going to pack a ton of stuff into these last, this last little season. Uh, Do you remember how uh, Jesus likened the end times to uh, a woman's 
labor, child labor, birth pangs. Uh, I've had the privilege of watching that a few times. And uh, let me tell you, it's kind of interesting. You know, they, you, you go to the hospital, in case you forgot, when they get to five minutes apart, and they're pretty serious, but it's, you know, there's a four and a half minute break in between them. And then you get there, and, and if things go right, they get closer and closer and closer. If king, things go wrong, they send you home, and you wait till the next time they get to five. And, and, and you do that. And, and I've, I, I've seen it so many times. Uh, you know, you're, she, she's at nine or ten and all this stuff, and, and the doctor, you know, he's just like me, you know, he... Uh, well, he's just like me. We'll just put it that way. And he'll say, okay, we ain't got much more. And, and it's like easy for you to say because from my perspective, even though we were maybe only 15 minutes or 20 minutes away from, you know, kickoff, I mean, there was still 40% of the work to do, maybe even 70% of the work. I mean, it's like, it, it, you know, is easy when they're five minutes apart, but when they're like 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, and you got about one second to take a breath and then go again, I mean, that's where the work is. That's kind of what the, the way to understand this thing is. I mean, he, the, the angel is saying, look, folks, you think a whole bunch of stuff has happened. Delay no longer. From the, chapter 10 to the end of the story, which is chapter 19, when Jesus finally does come back, lots happens, but it happens in a very compressed amount of time. Hey, one more detail. Uh, some of you that are older may, may uh, be familiar with this issue. Uh, if you ha ever read the King James Version, the King James Version, the very last of verse 6, will say, and time will be no more. Uh, totally blew it, total mistranslation. I can't even explain it. But here's the deal. 400 years ago when the King James was done, uh, they didn't know how, they didn't know the Greek language anywhere near like we now have the luxury to know the Greek language. And so they, they just totally botched that. But, you know, for, for years people were like, man, time ends in chapter 10. How does this work? And it was very confusing. And, and now with more research, more archaeology, all this stuff, we know that this is actually the correct translation. So if, if you've wondered, where does the book of Revelation say that time is not going to happen anymore? Uh, it's not in there. Because it was mistakenly put in there at the end of verse 6 in chapter 10. But that's not accurate. So here's what, here's what we've seen, okay? We've got this big angel... He comes and he makes this announcement. And what's the announcement? We're almost done. Then look at verse 8. He gives some instructions to John. And we're going to see John do them and how he reacted. Verse 10, verse 8. The voice which I heard from heaven said, Go take that book, that scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. Go get it. And so John goes and gets it. And when he takes it in verse 9, he takes the book, the scroll, and, and the angel says, now I want you to take it 
and devour it. In other words, I want you to consume it. And again, now this is, this is a dream, this is a vision, but it's kind of interesting. This figure of speech that is, is used here, basically that means I want you to devour this content. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah talked often about how he ate God's word. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel talked about how he ate God's word. And I think what, what, what's happening here is, is in the dream, John ate the, the scroll, but the idea was he, he, he devoured the content of this thing. He, he studied what this little book, this little scroll, this little document had to say. And here's what I want you to see. The angel gave him a, a, a heads up halfway through verse t- uh, 9. Take it and eat it, and it's going to make your stomach sick. But in your mouth, it's going to taste sweet as honey. And sure enough, verse 10, I took it out of the angel's hands, and I devoured it. And it was sweet in my mouth, sweet as honey. But then... It was sick in my stomach. When I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter. Now just think about what what is that communicating there? What's John's reaction communicating? Well, if if this scroll represents content that was God's word, he's supposed to devour it. He's supposed to master it. He's supposed to do just like Jeremiah or just like Ezekiel, Really, just like us, he's supposed to eat it up, devour it. And man, initially, it's sweet as honey to him. But it's like the more it settled in his stomach, the sicker he got. Because I think he really understood what was being revealed. And let's think about John's situation here, okay? As he's in this dream, and he's experiencing this, this, the beginning of this little parenthesis between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. He, he is given access to some information, more information, about these judgments that God is going to pour out. And man, initially, as he mastered that material, as he devoured it, as he ate it up, Man, that was sweet. But the more he thought about it, the sicker he got. And that's kind of the lesson. You know, we're stopping there. That, that's, that's really one of the lessons I, I think is really worth grabbing right there is this, this whole relationship that John has to this little scroll, this bit of information that... He wasn't even allowed to tell us what it was, but we know it was from God, and it was about these people that had been rejecting God. And it obviously must have been some some very specific details about the judgments that God was going to pour out on them. And, And think about it. When John first saw it, it's like, yes! Those suckers are finally going to pay. I, can't, I love it when God does that. 
But then, as he sat and thought about it, it made him sick to his stomach. Maybe it made him sick to his stomach because he realized that he was a sinner just like they were. He, he was someone that his natural bent towards God was to reject God just like their natural bent towards God is to re- reject God. See, I, I, I think there's some lesson to be learned there. We're just taking a little slice in the story. The story keeps moving. More information. But isn't it fascinating that this document that revealed so much, man, it was sweet initially, but boy, it made him sick the more he thought about it. Now, like I always like to do, when we get to the end, and we're not at the end, but we're just going to have to stop for time's sake, is ask ourselves, okay, so what? What do I do with this? What do you do with this? Well, I, I want to give you two things, and we could, we could do more, but I just want to give you two things. Our relationship to the Word of God, like John's relationship to this little scroll, we're supposed to devour it. I mean, as a child of God, I am supposed to have a, a, a hunger and thirst after the Word of God to know it, to master it, to, to allow its truth to permeate my mind and my heart so that I start thinking and responding more Christianly, more Christ-like, so that I, as, as Romans 13 says, I have the mind of Christ. You know, in the Bible study that uh, Philip uh, Ray teaches out in uh, the lobby on uh, Thursday mornings, guys' study, we, we, this is the, one of the verses we looked at. Well, it's four verses that we looked at. But, but look at this. I, I hadn't read this in a while, and I, I, I saw that, and I thought, boy, this is, this is pertinent. He, the, the writer is talking to the people that he's writing to, and he says, about this, about this topic that I'm about to tell you about, I have so much to say. It's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, he's unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to be able to distinguish good from evil. I mean, you know what's going on in those couple verses there? The writer is chastising his readers and saying, Folks, you guys are still acting like baby Christians who, who can't get past the very basic stuff of of." the gospel. And I've got so much more to teach you, and I've got so much more that you need to know if in reality you're going to navigate yourselves in this, in this world and be able to discern right from wrong. I mean, we're living in some pretty confusing times. I mean, we've got huge segments of our society that are angry at each other. 
you know, they're mad at each other and, and, and tons of things are going on and, and, and we have to have an opinion about it. And not only do we need to have an opinion about it, it's got to be an epib- a biblical opinion. And even though we're angry about it, we better be expressing that anger in such a way so that we're showing that we're the people of God. We're not like just everyone else. I mean, there, there, it's, it's got to be a righteous indignation that we are manifesting. And how in the world are you going to do that if you just nibble at the Word of God? See, I think, I think the angel here told John, go eat this thing. Get, get master this material because you're fixing to hear some, move into some really tough times. And we're moving into tough times. We've moved into tough times. And quite frankly, the person who's, who, the believer whose feet are not firmly fixed in the Word of God is just getting tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, what works must be what's right, or what gets this or must do that. I mean, I mean, this, this, this is not a time for, for, for just a weak walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a time where if you don't run deep into the Word of God, you're going to be toast. Or your kids are going to be toast. Or your grandkids are going to be toast. So, so just one of the takeaways that I think is illustrated here in John's response to this little book, the little scroll that the angel had that, that, that you know, contains such information that was just really impressive to him. He, he devoured it. And I think something else that just kind of flows out of this is John's response. He ate it, and initially, man, it, it was really sweet. And, and we don't know all that he was, uh, saw that he wasn't allowed to record, but what he was allowed to record was a lot more death and war and famine and pestilence and Lots of bad stuff, because when we get to chapter 16, we're going to see some really bad stuff. You think the stuff we've seen has been bad. Chapter 16 really has some bad stuff in it. And when John initially saw all that stuff, he was like, yeah, good. It's about time, those people. I'm sick of what they're doing. And they're finally going to get their desserts. But I, I, I can't help but think that John because of his walk with Christ, because of the depth of his relationship with Christ, because of the love that God had given to him, as he sat and thought about the fruit of these people's disobedience that was causing all that judgment, it made him sick. In other words, I think John showed some tremendous compassion. And, and this kind of leads me to this, this second... Uh, thing here i mean we got to know the enemy and you know who the enemy is it's satan it's not that sinner that's caught in satan's lie that is an agent of satan that person is i hate to even use this term but that person is 
a prisoner or a victim of Satan. And, and, and I think that when John saw what was going to happen to the rest of humanity, I mean, it made him sick to think that here were people that are eternal who are heading to an eternity without God. In other words, it ignited in him a compassion. And, uh, you know, I started off talking about how everybody's angry and maybe our anger ought to look a little different. I'm not saying we shouldn't be angry. And I'm not saying we shouldn't get in there and fight, you know, well. But the anger that I should have and the anger you should have should be anger is also tempered or at least mixed with some compassion. And look at this verse. This is out of Colossians chapter 3. This is where when, when Paul is talking to these people in Colossae about how they've got some people in their midst who are trying to lead them into a secular, worldly, horrible philosophy of life. That's chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. And so he gets to chapter 3 and he says, start, here's how you do it. You set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, etc., etc., etc. You get down to verse 12, he says, So then, as those who have been chosen of God, that's us, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another just as the Lord forgave you. Here's the deal. I think that you and I, as, as we're walking through this cultural crisis, and, and we can see that we, we're, we're living in the midst of a culture that is just running away from God as fast as it possibly can. And, and seeking to change things. And, you know, as, a, as a, a grandfather, I look and I see, you know, the world that it's looking like is getting created that my grandkids have to grow up in. It does make me angry. But my anger needs to be a godly anger. And part of the, that anger needs to have that compassion in there and recognize who the real enemy is. It's Satan. It's this agent that is, is, is seeking to undo any and everything that God has done. And, and, and so there is a wisdom there. It doesn't mean we back off and we start tolerating. But I think it does say, wow, you know, initially that sounded really sweet to me. Those people will end up in hell forever. But after a little while, when I sit and think about it, those people will end up in hell forever. It should make me sick. And I should be motivated to sit and say, how can I be God so that perhaps you can use me and others to bring them to the Savior who died for them just like he died for me. Know the enemy. Devour the word. Know the enemy. Let's pray.
Lord, I want to thank you again. Because as we've been walking through these incredible things that you're going to do to bring uh, righteousness to the earth, to get the world ready to receive your son when he comes. I pray, Father, that you would work in us to, to give us that heart of compassion. And Father, that's probably mostly derived through devouring your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize uh, just how serious the times are. This is not a time to be weak in our walk with you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to walk closely to Christ. And Father, I pray right now that if there's someone here that does not know our Lord Jesus Christ, that maybe much of this was confused, confusing to them, I pray, Father, that today they would trust in the one who came to provide them with eternal life. They'd recognize it's not something they do, something they earn. They would trust in the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.